0: Hello everyone, my name is Chris. I'm the student ministries pastor here at Agorah Bible Fellowship. We are so excited that you have joined us for another online service. And just to let you know, our heart for everyone is to be connected to a local body of believers, a local church. And this online service is provided uh, just to be a supplement. So if you need some uh, extra time or you want some extra time in God's word or you're unable to attend church due to work or vacation or whatever it may be, uh, that's why this service exists. Uh, Just a supplement. Uh, With that said, there's a couple of things I just want to remind you of. The first thing is, Uh, We love praying for you throughout the week. You can text your confidential prayer request to uh, 97000, 9700, and Stephanie will receive those and she'll respond back almost immediately. Uh, We love praying for you and uh, we want uh, to know that we love partnering with you in your uh, prayer. Uh, So uh, the last thing I want to talk about is... uh, we have a lot going on here at Agora Bible Fellowship in all areas of ministries, and uh, you can go on our website at agorabible.org, and you can find information about all of our life groups, our events, and ministries that go on throughout the whole week. And that is our best—that uh, is the best place to find any of that information that you might be looking for. Lastly, we are just so thankful for your ongoing generosity and financial support and giving to our church. There's no way we can do what we do without that, and uh, we just so appreciate that. Uh, We just ask that you prayerfully consider making a donation, and you can do that on agorabible.org on our website under the Give tab, and you can donate there. We really appreciate that. Well, finally, let's get into God's Word, so grab that cup of coffee, grab that tea, and let's open up God's Word together. Thank you. Well, thank you,
1: Chris. And uh, greetings, church. Welcome to another online service as we're working through this book of 1 Corinthians. And I've titled this message, Order in the Church, as we're starting in chapter uh, 14 here today. And I'm imagining in our audience, we have a lot of people that have experienced a lot of different churches over the years. I imagine not just one church experience, but a, if you're like me, a wide variety of different church experiences thinking about my upbringing as my dad grew up and he attended one church growing up for many years. It was called Alden Union Church. It was in uh, the outskirts of Philadelphia. And so in my childhood, uh, growing up, we spent a lot of years as we moved away from Philadelphia trying to find a church similar to that. And so had a hard time finding you kind of when the bars set high, it's difficult. And so I had a lot of different experiences of uh, church Uh, Since I've been an adult, since I got uh, married, uh, we've been married this past Tuesday. I talked about that last week, 24 years. And in those 24 uh, years, uh, we've been at four different churches. And in the last uh, 10 years, actually just in a couple weeks from now, we're having our 10-year anniversary here at Agora Bible Fellowship. You start to realize, man, changing and exploring and discovering the right church is not always an easy task. But what I think helps a lot in the process of identifying what's the right church fit for you is to first come to the realization that it's not a free-for-all. It's not something that God just left up to human discretion of like, well, church can be whatever you want it to look like. It's whatever popular opinion or whatever the vote is for that particular group of people. But instead, you discover that God has very specific details and outlines exactly what is expected in our worship. So for us to realize if there's anything that we're pursuing, we're trying to figure out when we're landing in a church is it a biblically rooted church? Is what happens there when they gathered? Is, is, it, is it founded in Scripture? So I jotted down just a couple ideas before we break into this week's text of things to to watch for as you're exploring different church options and some things that I would say to warn against a couple cautionary uh, ideas or suggestions. The first one is a church that's kind of entangled, in meaningless ritual. Meaningless ritual. Many times, unfortunately, liturgical churches tend to go that direction. And I always say to someone, hey, if you can't point to the reason why you do that based out of scripture, it's probably not a biblical church. So that's something that I would caution against and watch out for. Another thing to to caution or to consider is not just that type of church, but kind of what I would describe as a social action or social justice church that's very concerned about reaching out, but's lacking in kind of doctrine or being rooted, and in the last two to three years has been kind of going by every which direction, what way that the cultural trend takes them. Similar to that would be a, a political church where their primary emphasis has wandered from God's word and the expansion of his kingdom to making sure that we figure out how to fix this kingdom and the politics here that are so broken. A political church I would caution against. Another one that I would caution against would be any type of a church that's opinion-based or felt-need sermons, That are really have nothing that's rooted and grounded in God's word. A lot of times there's a a philosophy that's kind of man-made philosophy that's intertwined in it. Man's opinion that's intertwined in it. Closely related would be another church that I'd, I'd caution against. But a church that would be more of a health and wealth gospel. Uh, That focuses just on the feel-good ideas where there's no mention of consequence or hell or sin or anything rooted in God's Word that are attached to the gospel message. Last one that I would suggest, and you could probably add to my list that's here dealing with the church here in Corinth that we're addressing, is a charismatic gathering that has no boundaries. It's a popular idea today that I think that there's like intended to be freedom in worship and gathering where there is freedom to worship but God gives clear boundaries as far as the use of the gifts within the church. What we're going to see in this section of scripture is God's very intimately involved observes what's happening and calls out when we wander from it, when we get away from his design for worship. I'm excited to work through this section of scripture. A lot of times this is considered a, a pretty controversial uh, text. And so if we can somehow make it through this time together and still be friends, that would be great. I think it's a bit complicated, but I don't think it's, not, it, it's something that's in, unattainable. I think it's something that we can work through, see what Paul is pointing to, make some sense out of that, and better equip us with tools in our pocket for what a biblically rooted church looks like. Let me pray before we begin this section. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time to be together and to be in your word and how you didn't leave us just floundering in especially important topics like where we put down roots, where we call a church home, who our community is, who we fellowship with. You give us clear parameters if we're diligent to spend time Uh, exploring them and unpacking them in Scripture. And so we ask that this time would be uh, profitable, that you'd speak to us through this uh, section of Scripture, and you'd be great, I'd be small. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So starting in chapter 14, verse 1, we got a lot of ground to cover today on this topic, but I didn't want to divide it up over weeks, but wanted to make sure we are clear on what the discussion is and the different points. So it starts in verse 1, says, "'Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God.' For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy, the one who prophesies Is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. All right, we'll stop there just for some explanation. Basically, he's wrapping up the topic of last week, if you remember, where we talked about the importance above all else. We were intended to be marked and rooted and grounded in love. So that's why he begins by saying to pursue love pursue love. The word pursue, there, there is the word in the Greek is dioko, which means to chase after it. This idea of uh, of intentionality, that it's not something, as I've frequently said, it's not something that you just stumble upon. It's not like you wake up one day and you're like, man, so strange. I'm all of a sudden so loving. It's something that, that takes work. I was talking to uh, someone this week that was saying they were interacting following the services pat- this past Sunday and-, and talking to a group out in the courtyard, and the group concluded, yeah, we still have some-, some work to do in this particular area, and that's fair, that's good, but it should be an area of gradual increase, a, a growth in patience and kindness and some of the other attributes that we discussed Last week. So he starts by again making sure we're rooted and grounded in that before we talk about this tough subject of at least these two specific spiritual gifts. But he doesn't want us just growing in love because we can sit back and have our peace symbol up and be like, Yeah, I'm just trying to love everybody. He's like, no, I also want you to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Why why earnestly desire the spiritual gifts? Basically. It's just saying, man, everybody should desire a supernatural enablement to serve other people. That should be on the forefront of our mind. If you're thinking about loving others, this idea of a spiritual gift comes right inso- alongside of that perfectly. It's a supernatural enablement to love and serve other people. So we're to earnestly desire that, but then Paul begins explaining the superiority of of prophecy over tongues. Why is that? Well, what's going on? Do you think in Corinth? What seems to be happening in Corinth is they're busy seeking the next personal spirits, a personal experience, rather than ways to serve each other. In other words, selfish church. What well, we have a term for present day is consumer church. It didn't just start in the modern era, the idea of what do I get out of it? How do I benefit? It's so much concern with my own personal growth instead of, hey, what can I bring to the table? How can I bless others? How can I build up? How can I invest in this church? And so they've slipped and gone that direction of me mentality, which is such an easy direction to head, but instead, he's starting to say, hey, more important, they must have elevated the idea of speaking in tongues as a, as a self-centered thing. And says, more important to that is prophecy. You're like, well, what is they, why is he talking about tongues and prophecy? Well, let me explain first, make sure we're on the same page with the two understanding the definition of both. I started a little bit of the topic last week talking about speaking in tongues, gave the definition of the ability to speak a foreign language unknown to the speaker, and this is something that we found uh, taking place all the way back in Acts chapter 2. If you remember, it was an evangelistic tool of, in a sense, kind of a a sign for unbelievers. What was happening in Acts chapter 2 is after receiving the Holy Spirit, this group of uh, of believers, the early church, were told that they started speaking in other tongues of the mighty works of God. So basically, the, they were expressing in these new tongues that they weren't familiar with, the, the, uh, talking about the mighty works of God. So in other words, a, a form of worship, a, a form of, of praise. And God, supernaturally, allowed the audience that had assembled that was observing this all take place to hear what they were saying, to hear their worship expressions, and for it to be spoken in the language in which they spoke. So it was basically, to some degree, a prayer or worship language that God enabled. He was the interpreter for all of these different dialects. They heard it in their exact language that they spoke. Similar, in Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles, when they received the Holy Spirit, were told that they re- did the exact same thing, that they began speaking in tongues. It says that they, extol- they were extolling God. Extolling, if you're wondering, that's not a word we use every day. Extolling means to praise enthusiastically. So they're speaking in these tongues. They're praising enthusiastically. You start to see a trend there that it's not just speaking about anything. It's literally a form of, uh, or expression of worship slash prayer. So this worship and prayer, now we're being introduced to in this section. We're hearing a description that seems a bit different from its origin there in Acts. It seems to be a, a, a prayer language That they speak to God in a way that edifies themselves, but it's indiscernible to others. So there's been a a shift, there's been a change. It's no longer discernible to others, it's just about self edification. It still, from my perspective, aligns perfectly with Acts chapter 2 and chapter 10 in that it's a prayer and worship language. But what's changed, and maybe it's what we talked about in chapter 13 where it ceased, is it no longer is a sign gift where it's amplified by the Holy Spirit allowing everyone to understand. Because we see right out of the way, right out of the gates, that people didn't all understand what was being said when it was being utilized. So it's no longer a the, the norm for it to be utilized in the, this part of the, the story of the early church, where it's no longer understood by all, all dialects, but it still continues to be a, a form of praise and a form of worship. Hopefully you're tracking with me uh, thus far. So for us to understand, though, this was not the norm of what prayer was intended to look like. Some people get confused that, that, well, as a Christian, are we supposed to be trying to move towards this? Is that what prayer is supposed to look like? Remember when they asked Jesus how we were supposed to pray, he didn't refer to speaking in tongues. He was very specific with words that were understandable. Every example in scripture of prayer that's happening is always with words that are verbal and expressed and understandable. Even with Jesus' own interactions with the Father, that would be true. So that's the introduction of the idea of spiritual gifts. I'm, not spiritual gifts, of speaking in tongues. The other thing that he compares and contrasts is the idea or spiritual gift, the second one mentioned, is Prophecy. Now, we typically associate prophecy with the ability to see the future, but that, my friends, is not always the case. Prophecy, a better definition of that, is the human report of a divine revelation. I'll say that again. The human report of a divine revelation. And that divine revelation can be either forthtelling or foretelling. What do I mean by that? It's either looking back or it's looking forward. It's different than the, the teaching gift where you're not just exposing or explaining God's word, but rather you're reporting what God has revealed to us from his word. It's Kind of like this idea when I'm studying God's word, I might say, well, when I was in the word this week, this is what God impressed upon me. That's what we often see in in Bible studies. It means in our life group, you and I was in this passage, and this is what it was telling me. I I have that encounter every single week. There's an aspect of this time that we're together that there's something that the Lord impresses on me that I, I can't not share with you. Something, a a divine thing that he opens my eyes to, that he wants me to communicate to you. And I'm sure you have the same thing when you're in the word. There's something like, man, this is where where I saw God speaking to me directly. Might be speaking to you directly about something in your life, but it also might be something that he wants you to share with somebody else to bless and edify them. That's what we would define as prophecy. Prophecy. Now, unfortunately, that's taken sometimes a, 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 a misdirection where people often will use, and you'll maybe even have had this experience where somebody will say, listen, I want to share with you. I have a word from the Lord for you. I always get cautious about that. Not saying that the Lord can't speak to through somebody, but I would much rather hear, I have a word from the Lord for you and it's found in 1 Corinthians 14. That's a, I, I want an address and title attached to it. A lot of times that can take you down some really wonky directions. Just over lunch today, I was just talking with Adrian a little bit about that, about our different experiences over the years with people having a a word from the Lord to us. And I would say they've left us with more confusion then clarity. I vaguely remember a word from the Lord from somebody that involved a, a purple airplane, seriously. My, my wife talks about her a word from the Lord referring from somebody else about her, her feet being on fire. and so there's, there, it can really be taken some, some strange mystic directions rather than what I believe is this idea of a prophecy. we get so confused on it is an encounter with God through the written word, not, not a, an impression that he's planted on you. So I get real cautious before I tell somebody, God told me to tell you something. I want to be real cautious to make sure I'm clear because Revelations chapter twenty two eighteen 18 is really serious and warns us, cautions us about adding anything to the word of God. Remember, so he's explaining here that tongues... Is a, is a secondary gift to prophecy. Now, why is that? He explains it in this section of scripture because the reason it's secondary is because all the way from the get-go, we've realized that spiritual gifts were intended or given for the common good. Chapter 12, verse 7, where we were in just a, a few weeks back, clearly explains that it was they're given as a, as a blessing, as a divine ability to be able to work together for the common good. While he's saying, Paul's explaining, most likely because they've inappropriately elevated speaking in tongues, he's saying, "I would rather have you. I would rather have you prophesying to each other." blessing each other from what you've encountered from God personally. It's interesting in verse 5 there, you see Paul says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. I don't think there's anything too confusing about that, wishing that people would be able to have an encounter with God, the ability to utter mysteries of the Spirit. But he brings that up only to contrast it with the idea that he would rather have them be able to prophesy or speak from their divine encounters with God so that they can build up the church. Here's the idea though, continues. The one caveat that's always pointed out, you're gonna see it run through this whole section of scripture, is the only time where speaking in tongues is used for the building up of the church is when there is an interpreter to help make sense out of it. In the early church in Acts 2, we saw that who the interpreter, God opened up the ears, allowed them to hear. It was a supernatural encounter. He's saying, "Unless there is an interpreter, then it's not beneficial to the audience." He expounds on that. In verse 6, it says, "Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible... How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with with yourselves since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. All right, now what are we having Paul say here? Basically, he's reiterating the same point in the first section of Scripture there, but he's reiterating that there's no value in speaking in tongues if nobody can understand what's being said. Hopefully that makes sense to you. He's saying there's no, no benefit to it, and he uses a, a couple of different illustrations there. The first one is a sarcastic examples of musical instruments that they're so out of tune that they can't be recognized. Then he brings up a, a military bugle. I was thinking about that. It's interesting how long a, a bugle has been used as a, as a military, as a form of getting people to, to either move forward or retreat. Once you hear the sound. you're like, "Oh, I recognize that." I, I had Justin grab a couple sound bites to see if you can help uh, me recognize what this first one is. The first one is this. Charge! That's the idea. That's a, a clear. Now, now imagine if that were all messed up, and you're in a lineup, and the uh, heading into battle, and this is just completely distorted. He's saying, "Man, if that was if that was thrown off, it would throw off the whole entire battle call." The other one is when it's time after you're losing or, 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 or losing ground. Another one is a, a a second sound by the bugle. Justin, play that sound. Now, that one you're maybe a little less familiar with. That's the the whole idea of retreating. Now, it would be very critical if the bugle player was not understandable in that setting. Going into battle, if you couldn't understand what was being played, you'd be like, I don't know if I'm supposed to charge. I don't know if I'm supposed to retreat. Well, think about that in the context of the church. He's saying, man, if we're, if we're busy, when we're in battle, when we're coming together and we're confused about the language that we're speaking, it's in, a, in an incomprehensible way. You're like, man, we are in big trouble. He's using that as a, as, a, as a way to understand how important it is to elevate the prophecy of speaking or charging each other over one over the other even uses the description that caught my attention. That's why I I titled this section that. You will be speaking into the air. Basically, the idea that all languages communicate except for your kind of language. Unintelligible languages are useless is really the big idea. And here's the thing. What I would say today in the charismatic movement, that's still an issue that we run into and is a problem. Uh, Outsiders have no idea what's being said or what's happening. And he's saying, man, that is not of of benefit. But here's the thing that's driving that. We see it in the description. He says, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. This is the same driving force present day where people are, are hungry for the experiential. They want to go from one, one pinnacle to the next. I, I've gotten to this place in my, my personal encounter with God. But here, here's the problem with that is really it becomes a, an ego thing where you start to think of, oh, I'm able to, to speak to God in my own private prayer language as a source of, of pride. And here he's saying that's not what we're intended to be with our gifts. It's not for building up ourselves. They're intended to edify others. So what he says, so the, those who are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, look at the instructions he gives right there in verse 12. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. Like, wait a second. Uh, you mean it's not about me and my different encounters with God and these different heights of emotionalism? It's like, no. The, the thing that I'm calling you to do is to look to build up the church. That's where you're going to have an encounter with God. That's where you're going to grow and develop in your faith. That's where you're going to mature in your walk with the Lord. Truth is, and this is practically speaking, the joy in life is found in serving others. If you want to be miserable, look at at just focusing on yourself and me, me, me. You start using people as a means to accomplish stuff for you. And he's saying, I don't want that. And the church, look at ways to build up the church. We have to keep moving. There's so much uh, in this section. Verse 13 he says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is Paul speaking, helping again for them to understand. First thing, he's like, listen, part of our spiritual growth isn't just happening in the spirit. That's intended to be spirit engaged with our mind. A lot of times, people think that Christianity were intended to check the mind at the door, but it's the exact opposite. We're told to be in the in the process of renewing our mind, restoring it, and making it new. So here, he's calling us to both engaging in the spirit and engaging in the mind. You see, in our worship we're told to to pray that we're able to interpret. You're like, why would I pray to be able to interpret? So that you understand that your mind can connect along with your spirit. He talks about that partnership of worship. That is this idea. He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit. I will sing with my mind also. It's not a going into a, a trance-like state in our times of worship. If you even think about our times uh, where we come together as a church, we, we have lyrics on the screen so that you can be thoughtful about the words that you're saying. You can process through what your praise actually looks like. But at the same time, we want you to have an encounter with the Lord, with your, your spirit to be able to engage. That's the idea that he's wanting to push here is a blend of both spirit and our mine. Two observations though that I made in this section that I thought were important to, to catch just in my own study. First one is that there's often in the gathering of church, there's outsiders involved. There's outsiders involved. So, so when we're thinking through, what does church look like? We need to be considering, and we're going to look at that in the next section, Consider it of outsiders, which reminds us that when we come together, when we gather for church, we should be thinking through, all right, what outsider do I know? Who, who's my, who have I interacted with that I should be inviting? I was getting uh, some car work done this week and I got to interact with a guy just locally here and he, uh, he was kind enough actually to give me a ride back and forth uh, to his business, which is just in, in Agora Hills. And it's so cool just interacting with him. And he's like, you know what? I I hope to visit the church sometime soon. I'm like, awesome, I'd love to have you. So so cool for those opportunities to engage with outsiders. So that's one of the observations when we're engaging our mind, engaging our spirit, but also being aware that there's outsiders involved in our time together. The other thing that I liked was pointed out there, that folks in the olden days, in the early church, they were part of engaging in the worship by saying amen. I was like, you know what? In the fall, I gave us a little bit of a hard time about that. And I was like, you know what? It was the first time I've seen that pointed out in scripture. He's saying, hey, if they can't understand you, how are they able to say amen? Which tells me that amens were part of it. And so something we should continue to strive for when we're gathering together. But basically Paul is putting these gifts together and understanding that he even though, and I find it interesting too, we're told that Paul had this gift. He, he, even though he had this gift, he says, man, I'd still take prophecy over this. No place do we find anywhere in the New Testament, him demonstrating this gift of speaking in tongues As he's out in public in his times of worship, it's something that he saved for his personal times of worship, he's still saying he would prefer intelligible words in worship for the sake of instructing others. He's helping this young group of believers understand which is the greater priority. Is it self and my own edification? Or is it how do I bless and encourage others? It's a message I would love to convey as well because so many times we can slip into thinking of the church coming here and what do I receive from it instead of the church being, no, we're supposed to be figuring out what our cool, unique, supernatural abilities are and how we can use those to bless and minister to others. Which leads to the next section. We're getting there. Verse 20 says, "Brothers." "...do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me," says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, but for believers." If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Kind of a cool reminder, first one that he charges, I don't want us to skip past this. First he calls us to be infants in evil. You're like, what do you mean infants in evil? This idea that there's certain things that believers are not intended to experience in this world. Things that were to remain distant from things that were supposed to remain pure and were to remain I like this picture infants in evil. Don't be naive about, uh, about, we're called to be naive about evil, but not naive in our thinking. He goes on to quote Isaiah, where tongues were prophesied, Isaiah prophesied about tongues being one of the ways in which God was going to reach out to that generation. And so this, actually, if you think about it, Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, saying that God would use tongues in order to reach and draw people to himself, but there would also be people, as there were in Acts, that heard and rejected it. So now what it's shifted back to, which I lean towards, is that it's ceased in the supernatural ability to reach out to the unbelieving. Now he's saying there's a transition where what they're left with, what they're given them, is the idea of prophecy. Prophecy then is now present day, still today, what I would lean towards is the means in which we reach the outsider. So what he's explaining, he said, listen, if we all come together and everybody's speaking in tongues, the outsider, what does it say is how they're going to respond? They're going to think that you're crazy, that you've got a screw loose. But if they all come together and you prophesy, in other words, point to what you found, the nuggets of truth and encounters of, uh, with God in scripture, and you point to that to them, look at the response that it describes that they're going to have. He says, "He says, but if prophecy and an unbeliever, or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. So what he hears, he's convicted by. He's called to account by all. In other words, held accountable for what he's heard The secrets of his heart are disclosed, that idea of, of sin coming to the surface. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So there's purpose behind the order in which is put in place in church. This idea he's saying, don't, don't be speaking in a, in a prayer language, in a worship language that's, un, un, that's not understandable. Instead, speak in a manner that people can hear the truth, be convicted by it, be ex, their hearts exposed, and then falling on their faces and calling out to, for rescue to Jesus Christ. He's like, that's what we're trying to be as the church, as we're building up he leaves us with the last couple of verses with the application of what this is, order is supposed to look like. It says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret." But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged." And the spirit of the prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So what's he doing here? He's explaining. He's getting down to the nuts and bolts of how things are intended to work within the church. I like his description there. He says, in your time together, there should be a hymn. There should be a lesson. There should be revelation. Still, present day, we experience those things when we come together. There's typically time of singing. There's typically time of le- a lesson from God's word, revelation from what's been exposed from God's word. And then he sa- then he describes the idea of spiritual gifts. If there mentions tongues, or, or not spiritual gifts, he refers to tongues, but then he refers to there being some limitations on the use of tongues. First, he says they need to go in order. Then he says there should be a maximum of two to three. And if there are going to be, if this is going to happen in your gathering, if, if that's intended to be a part of it, what does it say is intended to have? Is an interpreter there explaining what is being said? And you know, when I look at the present charismatic movement, I am yet to come across a time where they're speaking in tongues in the gathering of worship, where it's actually in that kind of a description. That there's an order to it. That means taking turns who's speaking in tongues. That it's a maximum of two to three. That there has to be an interpreter there to make sure that it's what's being said is being communicated so that it can edify and build up the group there, but these are the parameters that are clearly outlined in the New Testament. So if you're ever at a church that isn't following this guideline, you're like, man, you're not, you're not approaching this in a biblical direction. He says this idea in verse uh, 28 is if there's not an interpreter, they're to speak to himself and God. In other words, keep it to yourself. Keep your prayer language independent from the gathering or your time of worship in a tongue that's not understandable. Keep that separate from what happens when we gather together in this place. You see, gifts without restriction is not spirit-filled it's not a more spirit-filled way to operate. Sometimes that's the delusion. Instead, we have, we're told here, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. He puts He puts things in order in place for a reason. Remember some years back, our young adults ministry that I was leading, we were having a time of worship and it was awesome. It was a time where people are reflecting, people are really into that time. Uh, uh, but then someone from the group decided to walk up on stage, started dancing, started doing all kinds of crazy. And I, I remember, man, I've got to, I've got to interact. I need to, need to protect the community from this. So we ushered. I got some help to usher this person off. He ended up being uh, literally high on drugs. And so it was definitely a factor there. But this idea of going outside of order is like, God, God's like, no, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to create some kind of spiritualism that's about some kind of emotional high. I'm instead trying to create order in a setup that edifies and builds up. When you leave an encounter at church, you're like, man, I have, have been blessed by this. I've been encouraged by this. I've been challenged by this. I've been nudged by this. That's God's heart and his design, even as he says there in verse 26, let all things be done for building up. That's his heart for us. That's his heart for the church. That's my heart for us. That's my heart for the church that we use this time for building up. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this section of scripture and a chance to walk through your word and what it says about some of these topics that have become Uh, I would say, hot topics, but also topics that we've just wandered so often just off the track from your design. Paul couldn't have been more clear, and so we're grateful for that, of your expectation for what our times look like when we gather. God, I thank you for giving us clarity on this. I thank you for your involvement, for us to understand what it is you desire in worship. Thank you again for this time in your word. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.